Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and for Stephanie Cox, here are today's top stories. Former President Trump responds to an audio recording leaked in the classified documents case. Meanwhile, one of Trump's legal teams is trying to convince a Manhattan judge to move the hush money case to federal court. The U.S. Supreme Court makes a groundbreaking decision on how much power state lawmakers should have in federal elections, and their decision will play a critical role in 2024. A little-known government agency working with big tech to censor free speech. That's what a new congressional report alleges. We'll hear from two pioneers on solutions to censorship. Bidenomics, that's what President Biden is now pushing as he ramps up his 2024 campaign. What are his next steps amid voters' worries about the economy? And the Justice Department releasing a report on the death of Jeffrey Epstein, placing the blame on negligence and misconduct by prison guards. New developments today in former President Trump's legal matters. In Manhattan, his legal team attempted to move the hush money case to federal court. Meanwhile, in the classified documents case, a leaked audio recording appears to undercut Trump's defense. How did Trump respond? NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has the updates. Former President Trump's legal team argued on Tuesday before federal judge Alvin Hellerstein in Manhattan. The arguments were part of the team's bid to remove the hush money case from state court to federal court. To successfully remove the case, the team must prove the charges relate to Trump's presidency. They first argued that Trump had hired Michael Cohen during his presidency. Second, that the charges accuse him of making a payment to influence the federal election. And finally, that as a former president, he is immune from state prosecution. The Manhattan prosecutor's office argued that Trump isn't immune from prosecution because his conduct had nothing to do with his official duties and that federal election law does not take precedence over state regulation of fraud. The judge didn't immediately rule on the matter. While Judge Hellerstein mulls over the legal arguments, new developments are brewing in the Florida classified documents case. Trump's longtime aide, Walt Nalta, could not be arraigned in Florida today. He was scheduled to appear and enter his own plea to the charges. His attorney on Tuesday told the judge that Nalta still hasn't retained local counsel and that his flight to Florida had been canceled. Nalta has been charged with conspiracy to obstruct justice and making false statements. The judge granted his request for a delay and rescheduled the arraignment for July 6. But perhaps the biggest news of the day is CNN's release of the audio recording of Trump allegedly discussing sensitive military documents. This totally wins my case, you know. Mm -hmm. Except it is like highly confidential yeah. secret. <laughs> this is secret information. Yeah. Look, look In this. a Fox News interview, Trump responded to the release. We did absolutely nothing wrong. This is just another hoax. It's called, uh, I would say, election interference more than anything else. It's a disgrace that they can do it. Some legal experts have said the recording undercuts Trump's earlier remarks that he was referring to newspaper and magazine clippings. A former federal prosecutor said Smith's team is playing to the mainstream media. And the reason for that, Mark, is that they are terrified of litigating some of the very serious legal flaws in the case that they've strung together against President Trump. Arlene Richards, NTD News. 
The U.S. Supreme Court has delivered a pivotal ruling against North Carolina Republicans, and their decision will play a critical role in the next presidential election. NDD's Jason Perry has the details. We're pleased that the Supreme Court uh, rejected the extreme legal theory uh, presented in this case, which would have interfered with state governments. On Tuesday, in a 6-3 vote, the Supreme Court rejected North Carolina Republicans' argument that state legislatures have the final say in federal election rulemaking. I spoke with attorney Steve Tolan, head of the Austin office of FBFK Law, to get more information on how the case got started. He explained that after North Carolina's 2020 census, the state legislature took it upon themselves to remap the congressional voting districts before the 2020 elections in favor of Republicans. What happened here is that the state legislature said, uh, let's hurry and, and rezone this, this voting map and we don't need to go through uh, other procedures and safeguards, uh, federally constituted safeguards, I should say, uh, through the state court system. He said going through the normal state process could take years. And to him, it seemed that the state legislature tried to circumvent that process to rezone quicker. On the other hand, Republicans argued that the Constitution has always authorized state legislatures alone to make rules for the conduct of federal elections in their respective states. And that's also known as the independent state legislature doctrine. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas was one of the three justices who dissented. And Judge Thomas said he just didn't feel like it was a live issue that, that the Supreme Court should be stepping into because his fear was that each state now would start having these bickering sessions about uh, their issue. Uh, and he just felt like that all of a sudden the Supreme Court was going to be in the business of deciding state election laws uh, ad nauseum, I think is kind of paraphrasing kind of the way Judge Thomas was saying it. And Judge Roberts disagreed. And I think what you see Judge Roberts say pretty emphatically is a, a very strong denouncement of the independent state legislature theory and just found that when it involves federal elections in any way, shape or form, like in this one involved, Judge Roberts felt that it's very important to unequivocally state that Supreme Court's holding now is the independent state legislature theory won't apply here. And Tolan says that although on the surface it looks like a Republican versus Democrat issue, it's not necessarily the case. You know, 50 years from now, this whole in particular area in a particular state could change and it could be overwhelmingly Democrat. And then a Republican might be saying, hey, this is unfair. Because what you want is that the people that constitute the particular area where your voting map is, you want the voting map to be truly representative of the individuals that live in a particular area. Tolan said what he thinks we'll see in future elections is that state legislatures will have to comply with federal election law standards and constitutional mandates. Jason Perry, NTD News. To get some analysis on the Supreme Court's ruling today, NTD's Jack Bradley spoke with Jim Burling, the vice president of legal affairs at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Jim Burling, thank you so much for your time. It's great to have you on. It's great to be with you again. So for this ruling, the 6-3 Supreme Court ruling, um, what is your reaction on this? Well, I'm actually not terribly surprised. What the legislators in North Carolina were attempting to do was to use the federal elections clause to override a state Supreme Court decision on the gerrymandering of the state, uh, basically, which is what it was, which is a good thing if you like it, not so good if, they rule, if it's, you're in the other party. 
But the bottom line was the federal elections clause, which says the time, place, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. So the primary question is, the, the merits question is, does that mean only the legislature of a state gets to decide? What if you have a state where you can have a gubernatorial veto or a review by a state court, a state Supreme Court in this case? And the Supreme Court of the United States said, yeah, the legislature gets to create the boundaries for the districts, congressional districts. But the state Supreme Court still has authority over that. There's nothing in the federal constitution that overrides the ability of the state Supreme Court to overturn a state legislative decision. Hmm. Now, uh, it's become, it seems, partisan. We have the uh, North Carolina Republican legislators um, against the Democrats in the Supreme Court there, uh, the state Supreme Court. Why is this becoming so partisan? Well, I think it's becoming partisan because there was a uh, people realize more than ever now how important congressional districts are because we're so close. But this isn't only a Democrat or Republican thing one way or the other. For example, in New York state, there was a heavily gerrymandered Democrat uh, congressional line drawing. And there that state Supreme Court overturned that congressional line drawing by the legislature because it's so partisan, so gerrymandering. In North Carolina, the Republicans drew it. The Democratic State Supreme Court overturned it. But then after that, there's another Supreme Court that was elected in North Carolina that was primarily Republican, and they reversed the prior reversal by the Democratic majority in the Supreme Court. So it goes both ways. And I don't think anybody, Republican or Democrat, will look at this and say it's all one side or the other. If there's a Democrat majority, they'll gerrymander. If there's a Republican majority, they'll gerrymander. And what the Supreme Court said today was that the state provisions for override, say a, a Supreme Court override, are in place and are not going to be disturbed by the uh, federal constitution and the elections clause. Now, many are saying that this would have given the state legislatures um, free reign to set their federal election rules. Uh, how, to what extent is this accurate? Well, if the legislatures could not be overseen by a state Supreme Court or in some instances a gubernatorial veto, yes, the legislators would have had free reign to do whatever they want, uh, not only in North Carolina, but in every other state, such as, as I mentioned before, New York, which has had a history of gerrymandering. And I should point out one other thing, too. After the 2020 election, then-President Trump talked about the uh, state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania having uh, ruled on absentee ballots that had an impact, he said, on the election outcome in Pennsylvania. Now, whether or not you think it had an outcome on the effect on the outcome of the election, it is true that there the state, legis the state Supreme Court had a hand in line drawing and in a, a hand in setting the procedures for the election. And that kind of challenge to what the state legislature there do is pretty much precluded now, was the state Supreme Court did, I mean, is pretty much precluded, that the state Supreme Court can do what it did. And the Supreme Court, without talking about Pennsylvania, essentially said what happened in Pennsylvania was okay as well. Well, with that, Jim Burling, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure.
You may remember the DHS's Disinformation Governance Board. Although it was disbanded, there appears to have been a second agency that carried out tasks to censor online speech, and they try to cover their tracks. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with more details. The Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of Federal Government released a report on Monday highlighting concerns of a little-known agency that operates within the DHS. The report alleges that this agency conducted censorship programs and also tried to take steps to cover up that effort. And they did this not only through working with big tech platforms like Twitter, but also through working with third parties to conduct censorship by proxy. That essentially means that the government would have outsourced their uh, monitoring programs to third parties instead of operating them within the government because that would violate the First Amendment rights. The director for the cybersecurity agency um, said that it is true that they were funding third parties as a way to amplify voices of what they call trusted election officials to help counter what they say is disinformation. I want to know your reaction to that. Well, I, I, I'm always concerned that the arbiters of the truth, so to speak, or self-proclaimed, um, are only interested in the truth in one direction. A number of outlets promoted this completely untrue theory that the, that the Trump campaign like, systemically colluded with the Russians in an election. It was disproven. So I'd love to know, what did they do to restore faith in the election system by countering that narrative? Because I still see it today. And because of this concern, many tech experts have launched social media platforms meant to go around the censorship and allow people a space to speak freely. However, that raises another concern. Would this creation of these alternative platforms create an echo chamber, making it even more difficult for both political parties to come together and have discourse? So will it create an echo chamber? It might. But otherwise, the, your alternative is you're going to miss half the news on half the events that you're looking for. There's a new model, and that's, that's Web3, where you own all of your data. And it's a system that doesn't require you to pay with your privacy. And he and others say another solution would be to address the overclassification of records. This way, Americans would have more access to know what the government is actually doing, thus creating more transparency and responsibility. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. The White House is stepping up its public messaging efforts with a new term called Bidenomics. It comes as President Biden is set to rally voters in a major economic speech this week. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. Bidenomics, that's the term and the new branding that the White House is now promoting, trying to convince the public that the economy is actually better off under President Biden. Bidenomics is uh, having a, a tremendous impact. How is Bidenomics not an era of high inflation and rising unemployment rate? Well, take a look at where we started and where we are now. Uh, inflation that, again, is lower than any other major economy in the world. And the push to defend and highlight President Biden's economic record comes as President Biden is stepping up his campaign activities and is set to give a major economic speech in Chicago on Wednesday. In that speech, President Biden is set to lay out his vision for the U.S. economy, and that is taxing the wealthy and building the economy from the middle out and bottom up. We're not going to leave anyone behind. But the economy could actually prove to be a weak spot for President Biden's re-election chances. Recent polls show that only a third of the country approves of President Biden's handling of the economy. But the White House on Tuesday insisted that there is strong support. 
reshoring manufacturing jobs and investing in America. Those things are incredibly popular. And we find that when we go out and we talk to people about it, they support Bidenomics. Inflation has slowed down compared to its peak in last summer, but is still much higher than the 2% target set by the Federal Reserve. Meanwhile, the CEO of Bank of America said on Tuesday, We think it will take them all of this year and all of next year before they get inflation in line with their long-term target. And that's as President Biden's rivals in the 2024 race are using the economy to criticize the current administration. I will stop Joe Biden's inflation nightmare, save the U.S. economy. And tomorrow in Chicago, President Biden is also set to attend a campaign event. And that's as President Biden is stepping up his campaign activities by going to Maryland today and to New York City on Thursday. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. A new report out today on the death of Jeffrey Epstein. The Office of the Inspector General of the Justice Department reaffirms that his death was a suicide, but highlights significant misconduct on the part of the prison where Epstein was held. A report from the Justice Department on Tuesday said that a combination of negligence, misconduct and outright job performance failures by prison guards made possible the death of Jeffrey Epstein. DOJ Inspector General Michael Horowitz blamed numerous factors for Epstein's death. For example, we determined that MCC New York staff failed to ensure Epstein was assigned a cellmate, as instructed by MCC New York's psychology department following an incident on July 23rd, where Epstein was found unresponsive in his cell with a cloth wrapped around his neck. In addition, we concluded that MCC New York staff failed to undertake required measures designed to ensure Epstein and other inmates were accounted for and safe in their cells. The report states that Epstein used extra linens to hang himself at New York City's Metropolitan Correctional Center in 2019, 35 days after he was arrested on charges of sex trafficking minors. The circumstances surrounding his death have been a source of intrigue, but the Justice Department said they found no evidence of foul play. While we determined MCC New York staff engaged in significant misconduct, we didn't uncover evidence contradicting the FBI's determination that there was no criminality in connection with how Epstein died. Horowitz identified 13 jail employees with poor performance and recommended charges against four workers. Only the two workers assigned to guard Epstein the night he died were charged. They avoided jail time in a plea deal after admitting to falsifying logs. The DOJ investigation was the last of several official inquiries into Epstein's death, and it echoed previous findings. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Coming up, the head of Russia's Wagner mercenary group is now in exile in Belarus, and the Kremlin says that members of the group will soon turn in their weapons. And presidential candidate Nikki Haley today outlining her China policy. She also criticized former President Trump's handling of China. That and more after the break. Welcome back. The head of the Russian mercenary group Wagner has entered exile in Belarus following a failed mutiny. And according to the Kremlin, his forces will soon be handing over weapons to Russia. NTD's Sam Wong brings us the latest. On Tuesday, 
the president of Belarus confirmed Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin's arrival. Yes, indeed. He is in Belarus today. As I promised, if you want to stay with us for some time and so on, we will help you, of course, at their expense. Prigozhin launched a mutiny against Moscow over the weekend. He said that Russia's military leadership deceived its own nation into an all-out war, and among those who were lied to, President Putin was one of them. Prigozhin added that Russian forces deliberately attacked its field camps in Ukraine and murdered nearly 2,000 men. But the uprising came to a halt after the Belarusian president brokered a deal with Prigozhin. Lukashenko said he talked Prigozhin out of a half-mad state and advised Putin not to respond too hastily, saying the Wagner leader was shaken by the death of his men. Under the agreement, Wagner members will face no criminal charges, and Prigozhin himself is allowed to enter exile in Belarus. In the meantime, the Kremlin's defense ministry said that the Wagner group is preparing to turn in its weapons, indicating a possible disbandment in the upcoming days. This came just on the heels of President Vladimir Putin's statement on Monday, in which he offered Wagner members the choice to join regular Russian forces. Those who don't want to join can either go home or catch up with their leaders in Belarus. Some of the surrendered arsenals include tanks, aircraft, air defense batteries, and an airborne command center plane. But the dust hasn't fully settled in Moscow. Putin has announced an investigation against Prigozhin today, saying that the leader has received around $2 billion from the Kremlin. Meanwhile, I want to note, I want you all to also know about this. Support for the entire Wagner group was fully provided by the state, from the defense ministry, from the state budget we fully funded this group. Putin didn't mention Prigozhin by his name, but the Russian president did vow to, quote, squash him like a bug if the mutiny had carried on. Sam Wong, NTD News. And for more analysis on the latest developments in Russia, earlier today we spoke to Colonel John Mills, senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy and author of The Nation Will Follow. John Mills, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Tiffany. Always an honor to be on your show. So a lot happening in Russia. We have the Wagner group that had this mutiny or potential coup. We're not really sure what happened here, but in terms of historical examples, it seems anyone that tries to go up against Putin is dealt with very heavily. In terms of Prigozhin, it almost seems like he's getting off easy with this exile to Belarus. Is it a trap? Will he be allowed to live? What are your thoughts here? Tiffany, I think it's too early to totally determine what is going on. Um, there's just so many moving parts. There's uh, there's assertions that potentially there was a botched CIA effort to help flip uh, Prigozhin against Putin. Don't know. I know some people feel strongly that way. Others, uh, a former CIA colleague of mine who is, is definitely against that. But I don't know. It's it's too early to tell what's going on. Um, but uh, all of the above could be true. I think uh, there definitely was a mutiny. There definitely was a movement toward Moscow. And, and uh, Prigozhin, I think, had enough after he was uh, being ordered to sign a contract with the, uh, the, the Russian Ministry of Defense and subordinate himself. Uh, to Shoigu and Gerasimov, uh, the Secretary of Defense and the Chief of Staff equivalents. Um, and Putin's response has also been a little interesting because he's, uh, on one hand, there's been a, a statement of, of total uh, uh, that uh, uh, Prigozhin and all the Wagner forces are essentially being forgiven. I don't know what's totally true on that account. 
uh, and Prigozhin is suddenly in Belarus. Um, so with uh, Luke Bender, Lukashenko's uh, uh, invitation, um, there's assertions of nuclear weapons uh, uh, being lost, being controlled. Tiffany, we just there's too much going on, and we just don't know at this point in time. And I'm just I'm just trying to take in all the information from all the directions and try to make sense out of it. And John, the Wagner mercenary groups were a big part of Russia's offensive into Ukraine. How do you see this mutiny, no matter how short-lived, impact Russia's image in terms of this war? Yeah, I can't see anything other than it tarnishing and hurting the, the already bad morale of Russian troops on the ground. And I'm not taking part. Uh, as soon as you make statements like that, uh, some would assert that you're being an advocate of Ukraine over Russia. I'm, I'm, I'm totally um, uh, neutral on this factor. I'm just trying to call it like it is. I, I don't see it doing anything but hurting the Russian troops on the ground. And um, the Ukrainian offensive uh, doesn't appear to be uh, on a grand scale what it has been touted to be. But at the same time, it does look like they're gaining ground at, at a price. Um, and uh, uh, across the front, uh, and especially uh, in the center section uh, between, uh, uh, in the center section of the, the, the Russian-held territory, uh, that's where they seem to be making their most of their efforts. So not not in the north or not in the south near, near uh, Kherson, and not in the north near the uh, Donbass region. Uh, in the center is where they seem to be uh, uh, focusing their efforts. They do seem to be ma making uh, progress. And zooming out, how do you see China or Chinese leader Xi Jinping viewing this, especially in light of their no-limits friendship? How do you see him viewing this potentially weakened Putin? Uh, I think it probably rattled them. And, uh, and again, who knows exactly what was going on? And these, these events, being, having served time at the, at the top of this, the, in the Secretary of Defense, at the National Military Command Center, at the White House, these are fast-moving events. I think it probably rattled China. Uh, they, they look at uh, Russia uh, as diminutive as they are in, in actual resources as their primary partner, their lead partner. So it probably rattled them. They don't want to see them collapse. It also was a message to uh, Xi and uh, the Chinese Communist Party that things can rapidly turn. And uh, it was looking awfully scary there uh, uh, Saturday afternoon and Sunday morning uh, in Russia that perhaps the whole Putin regime would collapse. Uh, didn't know truth. Um, and uh, I think she probably uh, made him realize that he is not uh, unassailable uh, in his position and how, how fast things could turn. And so, again, one more, one more possible uh, factor to consider when she is doing the calculus on whether to invade Taiwan or not, because uh, it's not going to go good in the early stages for China, and uh, it's not going to go good. And that could have a direct impact when uh, some of the senior generals and admirals uh, decide to turn around and go the opposite direction toward Beijing instead of Taiwan. John Mills, thank you so much for your insights. Tiffany, thank you so much. Always an honor to be on your show.
Republican Nikki Haley today outlining how she would handle U.S.-China relations if elected president. She also criticized former President Trump over his handling of China. Here are the highlights from her speech. Communist China is the greatest threat to American security and prosperity by far. Presidential hopeful Nikki Haley on Tuesday addressing the threat the Chinese Communist Party poses to America. It has stated its goal of diminishing American influence in the world and replacing it with its own. The Chinese Navy is especially concerning. Less than 10 years ago, it was about the same size as ours. Today, it has the largest fleet in the world. The former South Carolina governor is currently polling only in the single digits. She's recently been criticizing other Republicans' policies more directly. According to her, former President Trump focused too much on trade with China while being too friendly with the country. Even the trade deal he signed came up short when China predictably failed to live up to its commitments. Trump congratulated the Communist Party on its 70th anniversary of conquering China. But she did say that Trump was right about China's trade abuses and that it's still a problem to this day. Haley said she plans to defend the U.S. from China by strengthening the U.S. economy and the military. Also hinting at Trump policy Tuesday was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis while campaigning in New Hampshire. While not directly naming Trump, DeSantis talked about politicians who, in the past, didn't make good on their promises. A lot of politicians chirp, uh, they make grandiose promises, and then fail to deliver the actual results. And so the time for excuses is over. Uh, now is the time to deliver results and finally get the job done. DeSantis said he'll finish the wall, resist drug cartels with force, and more. France's National Academy of Medicine has banned a Chinese surgeon after finding out about his involvement in forced organ harvesting in China. NTD France correspondent David Vives has the story. Two years ago, the International Coalition to End Transplant Abuse in China warned France's National Academy of Medicine of the strong suspicion that one of their honorary members, Chinese surgeon Cheng Shusen, is involved in unethical organ transplants. Finally, the Academy replied. The Academy sent a letter in which they said they realized that this doctor is involved in scientific research using unethical organs. And so they decided to ban this doctor from the National Academy of Medicine. Shusen has performed thousands of liver transplants and is the president of the first affiliated hospital of Chexiang University School of Medicine in China. Undercover phone calls to the hospital found that the Chinese regime uses it as a base to illegally harvest organs from political prisoners. According to an independent investigation by the London-based China Tribunal, up to 90,000 transplants are done in China every year. The majority of them are harvested from living Falun Gong practitioners. In this specific case of China, we're talking about people who are alive. These people are not brain dead. We're really talking about living people who are going to be killed, whose organs are going to be removed and sold to a patient. Shusen's case raised another point. French hospitals' partnerships with China. Surgeons in France and other countries have helped China to develop its organ transplant industry. In France, we see French hospitals signing partnerships with Chinese hospitals. 
The techniques we use here in France are passed on to Chinese doctors who will use them to perform unethical transplants. So, in fact, this is where we are indirectly complicit in crimes against humanity. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up, the Biden administration pledges to spend $42 billion to make Internet access universal by 2030. How much money could it save you? And as July 4th approaches, police departments are working hard to crack down on illegal explosives. And in California, officers recently made a disturbing discovery. That and more when we come back here on NTD News. Welcome back. President Biden announced yesterday that $42 billion is going out across the country to deliver high-speed Internet. Could this promote economic growth and keep recession fears at bay? NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with an economic analyst. And with me now is Mark Hamrick, Senior Economic Analyst at Bankrate.com. So Biden announced a plan to spend uh, about $40 billion on nationwide high-speed Internet. He, he says it could help families, 19 million of them, save around $30 a month on their Internet bills. Um, so, you know, we've, we've been talking about having a recession, but it hasn't, it hasn't appeared. Uh, some, some are saying it's, it's the amount of liquidity that's holding up the economy. Now, with, with this new bill... This new spending, around $30, wouldn't that make it um, even harder for the economy to um, experience a recession and, and, and counter to what the Fed wants? Good to be with you, Don, and thanks for having me. I think we can look at these two issues essentially in separate contexts. And what I mean by that is we're really talking about the deployment of $40 billion over a long period of time here. And economic cycles uh, these days, uh, let's say over the last 10 or 20 years, particularly the last five years, have been much more compressed in the sense of time. And so, yes. Uh, this will uh, give a lift uh, to the economy in the long term. And so I think what the president and the supporters of this effort are looking to do is essentially accelerate deployment of high-speed Internet in a way that uh, would have taken much more time if it had been done, if at all, by the private sector. I do think that in the uh, intermediate or longer term, this will help people. They need to be participants in the digital economy. They need to have access to the resources that uh, broadband will provide. And we're seeing that play out. Yeah, I mean, saving $30 uh, more or less for families uh, every month, I, I mean, that's a good thing, right? But with economics, there's always pros and cons. Um, would this be inflationary? Yeah, I don't think so. I, I, I think that maybe broadly looked at, uh, you know, the totality of all the fiscal stimulus measures that were put into place during and, let's say, after the pandemic, and some of that spending is still obviously going on with highway building around the country. You can see it in many locations. That is uh, certainly supportive of economic activity. But I don't think the broadband measure in and of itself is inflationary. But for those communities which have been marginalized in a sense over many years because they didn't have access to this technology, uh, this will help presumably to lift them a bit 
Uh, and, you know, we have a huge problem in our country with uh, uh, the economic divide, wealth inequality, income inequality, and many of those rural communities are on the lower end of uh, that battle. And so, essentially, this is the Biden administration's way, along with the Democratic supporters of the administration and this legislation, to try to help those who have not been participants in the economic expansion of many years. Now, of course, uh, I'm not saying the government shouldn't allocate some money to spend on infrastructure, internet, et cetera. Um, but what do you think about the national debt being 120, over 120 percent to GDP? It's a horrible problem, Don, and uh, unfortunately, it doesn't really seem to rise to uh, a sufficiently important level uh, of uh, debate in the nation's capital or far beyond it. The presidential election cycle in the U.S. is going to be heating up, uh, let's say, over the next six months. It'd be very interesting to see whether these fiscal and uh, uh, related issues see the would-be light of day in the sense of the national conversation. All right. Thank you very much today, Mark. Pleasure speaking to you. Thank you, Don. California's governor announced that the state's new $311 billion budget covers a $32 billion deficit without touching reserves. But Republicans criticize the budget plan as unsustainable and project multi-billion dollar deficits over the next few years. NTD's David Lamb reports. California is the U.S.'s most populous state. And unfortunately, it has challenges such as dealing with homelessness, rampant theft, and drug abuse. With that, money and funds is an issue. California Governor Gavin Newsom and lawmakers on Monday agreed on how to spend nearly $311 billion over the next year for California's budget. Newsom said this covers the nearly $32 billion budget deficit without dipping into the state's savings, while, quote, preserving historic investments in public education, health care, climate, and public safety. In the past few years, the state has had over a combined $100 billion surplus, which went into government expansion. But this year, revenues slowed down reportedly due to inflated prices and stock market struggles. To cover the overspending, the budget cuts about $8 billion in spending, while delaying other spending and shifting expenses to other funds. The plan would borrow $6.1 billion and would set aside $37.8 billion in reserves, the most ever. However, Republicans criticized the plan as unsustainable. They say the proposed budget could leave the state in a multi-billion dollar deficit over the next few years. They added the state's gas tax is scheduled to increase on Saturday, an automatic adjustment tied to inflation. Republicans have repeatedly tried to halt those increases, but to no avail. The governor also talked about investing in public transit, addressing homelessness, and adding tax credits for those that manufacture computer chips and in the clean energy industry. It's expected to be voted on Tuesday. David Lamb, Entity News, California. With the 4th of July just around the corner, a disturbing discovery was made in one Southern California neighborhood. It raised serious safety concerns for the neighborhood, city, and county. NTD's Christina Corona has the details. This time of year, we all love fireworks and those colorful, professional pyrotechnic displays. But something we should all be aware of are the dangers surrounding illegal fireworks. 
Monday night, authorities tell us they received a tip regarding illegal fireworks at a residence located on the 1400 block of West Devon Street in San Bernardino. Officers responded to the call and discovered an abundance of illegal fireworks inside the home. One San Bernardino police officer told us 5,000 pounds of illegal fireworks were seized. At the residence, officers tell us they also uncovered multiple kegs of black powder, a substance utilized in the production of fireworks. In response to the investigation, the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department promptly dispatched a bomb squad unit for assistance and one man was arrested during the investigation. Similarly, many residents in Northern California's city of San Jose have expressed concerns as they've seen professional-grade fireworks over the past few nights. Their worry stems from the potential danger of these fireworks striking their homes and possibly causing damage. Jeff Levine, a Roosevelt Park Neighborhood Association president, said, I'm a prisoner here because I have to watch my house and the immediate neighborhood because we've had trees set on fire. The San Jose Fire Department is on high alert as residents have been setting off illegal fireworks almost every night, creating a dangerous situation for the community. Fortunately, thousands of pounds of illegal fireworks have been taken off of the street. One person is in custody, and once again, a reminder from the San Bernardino Police Department, illegal fireworks are banned citywide. Christina Corona, NTD News, San Bernardino. Coming up, California is setting new income limits for eligibility for state assistance programs. But what does the state consider low income in some of its wealthier areas? And in sports, a charity golf event run by an NFL player is nixed for what he says are political reasons. We'll have his story and more when we come back. Welcome back. California state agencies have just published new income limits for eligibility for state assistance programs. But these latest standards on what's considered low income are raising some eyebrows. NTD's David Zhang tells us more. Each year, the California Department of Housing and Community Development publishes annual tables of income limits for housing costs that may be charged to eligible residents, oftentimes based on their annual income. Now, this year's numbers are hitting new highs across almost 58 counties in California. The income limits are calculated annually based on federal guidelines and surveys of a local area medium income, or AMI. The commonly used income categories are as follows. Zero to 80% of the AMI is generally considered in the lower income bracket. Based on that, here is what's considered low income for a single-person household in major counties. The low-income limit in San Francisco and San Mateo County is above six-figure. California is the most expensive state in the United States. In a household, you have to have like three, four salaries now to make it in California. According to a report released by the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, California ranks number one in the U.S as the most expensive state to rent housing. To afford a two-bedroom house at the current fair market rate in the state, someone would need to earn $42.25 an hour or about $88,000 a year. 
The rising cost of living has been a key factor for people to relocate to other states. Inflation and lack of housing in general have also played a major part since 2020. David Zhang, NTD News, Santa Clara, California. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with an all-too-familiar story of sports mixing with politics. That's right, Tiff. Buffalo Bills safety Jordan Poyer says his charity golf event at Trump National Doral in Miami was canceled because of where it's at, seemingly implying that politics were the reason. Poyer, who was an All-Pro in 2021, said a number of teams pulled out of the tournament and then went a step farther and wrote emails to the sponsor, which then pulled out as well. Because of where it's at, at the Trump National Indoral, one of my favorite courses, like I said, in South Florida. Beautiful course, beautiful facility. Um, and I hoped uh, we could kind of get past that, and I thought that we did. Who the sponsor is, though, seems to be unclear. Poyer said it was New York's Erie County Medical Center, though the hospital told the Buffalo News that they were actually a beneficiary instead. The event, which was scheduled for July 11th, was to feature NFL players Gabe Davis, a teammate of Poyer's in Buffalo, Washington Commanders linebacker Cole Holcomb, and New York Giants wide receiver Austin Prohl. Meanwhile, for Trump, this isn't the first time he's seen his golf events canceled. Two years ago, former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio canceled his contract to run the Ferry Point Golf Course in the Bronx because of the January 6 events, though a judge ruled last year that the city had no right to do so. In the same year, the PGA of America canceled their agreement to host the 2022 PGA Championship at Trump Bedminster in New Jersey for the same reason. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, a full slate of baseball games are on as all 30 teams are in action, and that includes the LA Angels, who start two-way star Shohei Otani on the mound. Otani, who's set to be a free agent at the end of the season, is allowing the fewest hits per nine innings, while his strikeout rate is the highest at nearly 12 per nine innings. Meanwhile, as a hitter, he leads the majors with 26 home runs and 62 RBIs. His Angels will face the Chicago White Sox. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.